This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. A couple of weeks ago, I gave a talk in the city called um, Placing Ourselves in Suchness. And when I was uh, reading over it the other day, I felt I hadn't, um, I hadn't really dealt with the most important part of the talk, so I decided to, to return to it. So this is Placing Ourselves in Suchness, Part 2. And for that talk, I used primarily a poem by Joy, Joy Harjo, which I will return to, and this passage from the Prajnaparamita Sutra. My own self I will place in suchness, and so that all the world might be helped, I will place all beings into suchness, and I will lead to nirvana the whole immeasurable world of beings. With that intention, should a bodhisattva undertake all the exercises which bring about all the wholesome roots. So this is the vow that a bodhisattva makes on the path. This is their intent to lead to nirvana, to freedom from suffering, the whole immeasurable world of beings. And of course, the first question begging to be asked is, how do we place ourselves in suchness? And I've been speaking recently about uh, some of the teachings of the Yogacara and the eight levels of consciousness, and the, the image used in the Lankavatara Sutra of the mind as the ocean and as a wave. And so that eighth consciousness, as, as you know, the storehouse consciousness, the Alaya Vishnana, is the bottom of the ocean, is the depths, the ground from which all of the seeds of our karma uh, sprout, bloom. And manas, love of self, looks upon a wave of that ocean. It is the ocean, but it looks at a single wave and it falls hopelessly in love. And it immediately attaches to that wave and makes it its possession. And in doing so, it becomes very small. It's as if sensing, experiencing ourselves as that ocean, that vast, uh, that vastness, it's too much. It's like we freak out and uh, need to contain that immensity. And so right there, as on the fly, we just cobble together from flotsam a raft. And uh, we feel a little safer, a little more contained, secure. And yet very quickly we realize that's still a very flimsy vessel. And we get insecure again. And so we grab a bucket of paint and we just paint a huge X on the side of the raft to mark our spot. And then the spot still seems small and vague. And so we let ourselves float a little bit more and then we mark another spot and we mark another one securing our territory. 
And all the while, we're that whole ocean. And we can't, we sense it. I think we all have a sense of it. But we can't touch that vastness. It feels as if we're separate. And so Manas acts as a, as a kind of filter between the storehouse consciousness and the six senses through which we perceive reality. And the catch is that Manas cannot perceive reality directly. The storehouse consciousness can. And so can the senses, the six senses. But Manas cannot. The, the self is in its own way. It's like a veil. And so we're in the peculiar position of having to work hard to realize ourselves, and yet we can't realize ourselves. We can't do it. And when we do realize any bit of truth, we see that there was no self to be liberated. The Prajnaparamita Sutra says this. There's no self to awaken, and there never was. And that's the liberation. And still the work must be done, or we wouldn't see this. And so the work really is to liberate the seeds in the storehouse consciousness from Manas's grip, from its infatuation. And the way to do that is to place ourselves in suchness, which is a little bit of a, a funny way of saying it, since there's no place where suchness is not, given that it is always present, it is seeing that suchness right now. It is letting go of that self so that we can perceive reality directly. And so the Yogacara says that there are three main three fields or modes of perception, and the first one is direct. It is the, the field of suchness, in which we, there's no mediation. We perceive directly. And the second is the field of representations, and the third of mere images. And as I said, manas can only perceive the last two. In the example that I, that I gave of the the field of representations is that you know when, when we fall in love, most of the time we're not really falling in love with a person. We're falling in love with our representation, our idea of them. And when our relationship is based on this idea and not on the person as they are, eventually we will become bored or we'll become disappointed. Because inevitably, at some point, our partner will stop acting out our fantasy. They were never a fantasy to begin with. They're alive, and they're changing, and developing, and growing, and struggling with their own representation of you, their own disappointment of you. (laughs) So life in the realm of representations is very disappointing. And yet, that is where we live most of the time, in our projections, and our wishes, and our expectations, which ultimately are unsatisfactory. A number of, of years ago, we were with the kids, with, with Zen kids, and we weren't talking exactly about this, but we were talking about how we perceive, basically, and how you have an object, 
and a sense and consciousness. And when you put them together, you, you perceive. You see, you hear, you taste, you touch. And we were making our way through the senses. And when we got to taste, we decided to, to show how our, especially because we're so visually oriented, how our um, expectations and our ideas, our representations of what we see directly influence what we're tasting in this case. And so we took a bunch of Oreos and um, played with them. We, we put fish sauce in some and ketchup in others and barbecue sauce in others, being very careful that they still looked exactly like a regular Oreo. And so, and then we gave them to the kids. <laughs> They were absolutely disgusting. <laughs> they were disgusting. And, you know, the, 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 the outcome was as expected. They expected an Oreo. They wanted an Oreo and then were unpleasantly surprised <laughs> when they got something else, except for one of them. One of the kids actually loved them. I couldn't believe it. One of the kids wanted more of the ones with the, with the fish sauce <laughs> on them. <laughs> She clearly was not stopped, you know, by her expectations or influenced by her projections. And so, and, and we had different ways in which we were showing exactly that, you know, how we, once you experience, especially something for the first time, you know, you, you store it, as Dairog used to call it, the biocomputer, and then you stop looking, right? And then every time you meet it again, oh, there's your you pull up your representation of it. You don't really have to see directly anymore. At least that's what it seems. And then the realm of mere images is the realm of dreams, of images, of visualizations. And dreams are produced by the unconscious, and therefore they're hard to manage. Images can be conscious or unconscious, so they can, they can arise uh, deliberately, or they can appear unbidden. And uh, a while now, I was, I was driving one morning, early one morning, um, on Wurttemberg Road towards Woodstock, and I was um, that part where there's a, a pond on the side, and so there's animals, you know, cross the road there frequently to get to the pond. And that morning there was a huge, I mean, it must have been this big, a huge snapping turtle in the middle of the road, moving very, very slowly to cross the road. And so I got concerned that it would, that it would be hit. And so I stopped, I parked the car on the, on the side, and then I'm facing this snapping turtle and trying to figure out how do I move it? Because as you probably know, I mean, if that thing bites you, it can take your finger off. And so it's, it's kind of a Mexican standoff, <laughs> me, and the, <laughs> me and the turtle. And, uh, and somebody else, luckily, so there was a woman riding her bike, so she stopped. And she said, well, I, ha- I, ha- I have gloves, so I'll carry her, and you take a stick so that she can grab onto the stick. So I did that. I got a huge stick, and I put it in front of its mouth, and immediately just went... <laughs> And she took it from the back, and then very carefully we put it back where it was coming from. And then, you know, we said goodbye, we thanked each other, and she rode on, and I drove off. 
And then as I was driving off, the image that popped into my mind was a turtle just shaking its fist at me and being like, you bitch, I wanted to get to the other side of the road. (laughs) I felt so bad. (laughs) So images images just come. Um, Visualizations are are also images, but they are created deliberately consciously and in a very disciplined way in order to give rise to a particular reality. And so in the Vajrayana tradition, visualizations are actually called creation, meditation. You know, if, if we think of, of Zazen as non-creation, as, as putting to rest that constant, constant making and proliferation, uh, here which is, in fact, an, an advanced practice, is how to turn your energy and how to focus it very strongly to create a world, a state of mind, a being, uh, often to embody that being. And so although they're, they're still images, they're not reality as it is, technically, I feel that they do have their own, their own suchness, their own truth, and therefore enormous power. And when harnessed, they can be used as skillful means to direct, to protect, to illuminate this body and and mind. So the poem is called Eagle Poem by Joy Harjo. To pray, you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like eagle that Sunday morning over salt river circled in blue sky, in wind swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in knowing we are made of all this, and breathe knowing we are truly blessed because we were born, and die soon within a true circle of motion. Like eagle running out the morning inside us, we pray that it will be done in beauty. In beauty. And the student who who sent this poem to me said it, it reminded him of Rilke, but softer and more patient. And I, I liked that. You know, patience, shanti is, as you know, one of the paramitas, one of the perfections whose base is wisdom. And Shantideva says that there is no evil similar to anger, no austerity compared with patience. And I remember the first time I read that I was struck by that word, no austerity compared with patience. We so often think of austerity as as, um, as severity, as sternness. It can, be, it can be cold. It can seem aloof, hard. But this is a patience that is very simple and gentle and extremely kind. Like this, like this poem that says, you know, that in order to pray, we have to open our whole selves to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, 
We have to bear our hearts so they can be swept clean. And you cannot do that in a hurry. You cannot do it ahead of time. I had to learn the hard way that I couldn't be gentle and rushing at the same time. That I could get a lot done if I was moving fast, but that didn't leave much room for anything else. It didn't leave any room for anyone else. And still, I'm still learning to not move fast. So now I think of patience as as the ability to not anticipate, to be fully present in the here and now. You can think of of patience as the sister of suchness. And patience doesn't wait. It's not resigned. It just is. So being truly patient, you cannot even call yourself patient. You can't call yourself anything. And so meeting this moment, you're fully met by it in turn. I know I often say this in the, in the work meeting, to let the work teach you, because I find it to be so true that when I'm able to get myself out of the way or just quiet down enough, what is in front of me teaches me exactly, exactly how it needs to be cared for. And therefore, I can know and understand its blessedness. And it's not like like we have to work hard to see this blessedness. We can see it everywhere, everywhere we look. And when it seems like it's not there, it's not because it's absent, but because it's covered over. Sometimes it's so covered over that there's barely a glimmer of it. But it's never not there. So it's finding that barest of glimmers. A little bit of light to enter with. We were saying to to the kids the other day, we were talking about bullying and... um, You know, we were saying, no one can take away from you, you. No one can take away from you your perfection. And it's hard to see that. I wish I'd been able to see it in sixth grade, seventh grade, which was hellish. And I and I could, I I guess I could sense enough to know that. Responding back was not the way that I wanted to go, but I didn't yet, I couldn't yet touch that there was something that no matter what was happening couldn't be taken from me. And when you really see that, then it's not hard at all. And Harjo says, breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are truly blessed because we were born. And these two lines reminded me, there's a a koan in the Book of Serenity 
in which uh, a raja invites Prajnatara to a feast and asks why she doesn't read scriptures. And, you know, a few years back, there was a, a theory circulating among some uh, Buddhist scholars that Prajnatara is actually a woman. And um, given how few women are, are mentioned, you know, in the Buddhist literature, period, and how few are mentioned by name, I'm all for this theory. <laughs> um, and, you know, I was, I was thinking, I have to say, as I was thinking of this, because... Uh, that as a woman, and as a woman in the Dharma, this, this omission um, is painful. You know, I, I work with it in, in various ways myself, but it hurts. You know, it hurts that, is, that um, in this wisdom tradition that I love and trust deeply, that here, again, you know, we're... we're as women, we're often not represented or misrepresented. Right? We were the servants or the temptresses and the witches, the nameless bystanders. And there are some stories where women um, are uh, featured. You know, the, some of the stories the, the women of the way tell of the, the training of the Chinese and the, the Japanese women who became nuns, some of them masters, teachers in their own right. And, you know, a number of them tell of them being harassed by their fellow monks or denied training because they were women. Or in extreme cases, some of them would disfigure themselves in order to prove how much they really wanted to devote their lives to the Buddha Dharma. A hard uh, a, a tradition that, that says at its heart there is no distinction. There's no high and low, and everyone, regardless of who they are, what they look like, has put a nature and can realize it. And I know that, that Shugan Roshi spoke about this recently with regards to the Prajnaparamita Sutra, and for that I am, I am deeply grateful. Because I was talking to one of the, the female monastics and was reminded, was reminded myself that not speaking about it, it is a kind of collusion. It's a kind of acceptance. It's, it's like saying, you know, it's okay. Or this doesn't really affect me. It doesn't affect us. Which, of course, is not true. I think of, you know, right now, all the women who are coming forward, right, with... Um, speaking up about the abuse they, they've, they've um, suffered, you know, at the hands of very public figures, you know, men in positions of power. And I think of the many, many more who may not ever come forward. I read a very sobering statistic that a, that a woman is assaulted every 45 seconds. That's 50 women just during the course of this talk. And I, I would like to say you know, to those who create this herd, you know, you're harming our body. Please don't do this. It's, it's our body. You know, with each new um, allegation, I feel myself bracing. And there's another, and there's another, me too, 
me too, me too. And in one sense, maybe we have to work harder to let go, to drop off body and mind, you know, as, as women in a female body. Because the, the hurt, the fear is so old, is so in ourselves that we can't just tell ourselves, well, you know, just relax, just let go. And unfortunately, this is the, the product of this kind of, of hurt. We become afraid. We become afraid of you, our brothers. We don't want to be, or speaking for myself, I don't want to be, and yet sometimes I am. And of course, being excluded is not the same as being raped. But there's a whole range of harm, you know, from, from outright hatred to indifference. At the same time, perhaps for the first time, we are speaking up. For the first time, someone's listening and someone's doing something. And here we are working hard to change the strains of this, this unskillful karma. And hopefully, we will continue to see ourselves and see each other and to know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things, here and beyond these walls, because that's what is needed. If we're going to stop this, that is what is needed. And why wouldn't we do this when this is what we're made of, this care and this kindness? this gentle patience that is also fearless and is undaunted. So the Raja asks Prajnatara, why don't you read the scriptures? And Prajnatara says, I don't dwell in body and mind when breathing in. I don't get involved with things when breathing out. I always reiterate such a scripture, hundreds, thousands, millions of scrolls. Shugen Roshi called Kinhin a sutra. Breathing in and breathing out are Prajnatara's sutra. I don't dwell when breathing in. I don't get involved when breathing out. She's that close. And she's not saying she doesn't care. She cares completely. She could also have said breathing in, I know I'm breathing in. Breathing out, I know I'm breathing out. Breathing in, I breathe with the entire breath body. Breathing out, I breathe out with the entire breath body. She breathes in knowing we are made of all this and breathes knowing she is blessed. It is to be made of all sighs and tears. It is to be made of all faith and service. It is to be all made of fantasy, all made of passion, and all made of wishes. All adoration, duty, and observance. All humbleness, all patience, and impatience. All purity, all trial, all obeisance. This is from Shakespeare's As You Like It. And Silvius, a shepherd, is, is explaining what it means, what it takes to be in love. 
And except for, for fantasy, this could just as well be describing the spiritual path. Well, maybe we should keep fantasy in there since that's usually part of the picture. <laughs> but I think they're an excellent description of what it takes to place ourselves in suchness. There's definitely some sighs and tears of sadness, of joy, of disappointment, of deep, deep pleasure, of contentment, of fulfillment. There's really a lot of feeling happening, and more and more. It is to be made of all faith and service. It is to be made of giving and letting go and offering and responding as well as we can. To the, to the extent and to the depth of our um, clarity, our understanding, and then our ability to manifest that moment to moment. It's made of trust in our indomitable nature, in our wish to be awake more than we think we want to be numb, to be protected. to be contained. It's all made of passion, which we would call zeal, an aspiration and a deep desire to, in fact, be free, a deep desire to to no longer fear that immensity and the wildness of that ocean, its unpredictability, its aliveness. You don't know what will happen next, but you don't need to. Because whatever presents itself to you, you just respond. You meet it, and you respond. It's made of reverence and responsibility and respect, and even, let's call it veneration. Veneration for truth for goodness, for wisdom, for the universality of that Buddha nature. Prajnatara asked Bodhidharma, what among things is greatest? And Bodhidharma said, the nature of reality is greatest. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are truly blessed because we were born, and die soon within a true circle of motion. Our our lives are just long enough, just long enough for us to ask, What is this? And to find an answer to that question. But they're too short not to ask at all. And they take infinite humility and matching patience and impatience. So they're they're too short to rest in our certainties, in in our half-knowledge. 
in another part of the, the sutra, the Buddha asks Subhuti, you know, if somebody is, is, um, somebody is, is, touches an elephant, touches the leg of an elephant, and then the Buddha says, would it, be, would it make sense for them to, um, I don't remember exactly how the quote goes, but would it make sense for them to know the, the shape or the size, the nature of the elephant just by the nature of the leg? And Subhuti says, no, of course not. Exactly. And so being awake requires that we be willing to not assume that we know and understand what we have not carefully studied and deeply pondered. You know, Master Dogen says, you know, study deeply and study more. There is no point at which we will say, that's it, I have seen everything there is to be seen. And that is the best of news, because that means there is always something more that we can clarify. the path will be challenging. But we wouldn't really expect it to be otherwise. We're speaking of a total transformation, a revolution of mind. The Bodhisattva knows that it will be challenging. And they're undaunted by that challenge. Doesn't mean they don't struggle. Doesn't mean sometimes they don't know how to proceed doesn't mean sometimes they don't make mistakes or they fall short or they misstep in some way. It just means they're not stopped by that challenge. Totally transformed, we realize nothing has changed. As Hogan Sensei said the other day, Everything was pure from the beginning, from the beginning and all the way through. That's why it deserves our respect, all of it. It's pure from the beginning and all the way through. And as for obeisance, you know, Jimon used to say that the, the run the run on the, the inkin that the doan does, that it should sound in such a way that it should have such spark, such energy, such life, that at the end of it, the only possible response is to bow. That's how she would train uh, the doans. The only possible thing is you have to bow if you're doing that run correctly. And that's not true just of the Incan run, that's true of our lives. When we are able to see their blessedness, to see their beauty, despite the pain, including the pain because of the pain, the most appropriate response is definitely, it's definitely about. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.